1: Hello, and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Coulthard, and with me, as always, is the mad Irishman, Eddie Jordan. Ah,
2: yes, it's me, and we've got a real special guest for you this week. Gert Berger, the madman from Austria. He is indeed.
1: I will just give you some stats for our listeners who weren't watching Formula One back when Eddie and I were competing, but he raced for 14 seasons in Formula One. He started 210 races had 48 podium finishes and 10 victories. As you said, it's Gerhard Berger. And it's a pleasure to have you in the room. I'm sorry I had to bring Eddie because, as you know, he's a liability and he's probably going to make up some lies and you have to deny them.
2: No, that's it's not good, true. It's
3: good that you didn't be, tell me before that you bring Eddie. Otherwise <laughs> I wouldn't
2: come here. Well... I could be your saviour. Don't, don't, okay, don't okay, write okay, me off. Don't write me off. It's a don't deal. So I'm going back. Can I go back in time? You can do anything. It's your point. Because uh, you asked, when did you first meet each other? And I'm thinking back. And I said, well, there was... Tommy Byrne, and we'll talk about him in a second, because he was crazy. So 1982-83, I remember he was driving for Trevolato in Formula 3, and, but he did one race with Helmut Marko, I think, as a separate race, which was the Austrian Grand Prix. We did it also. Marty Brundle won it. Gerhardt was second. Allenberg, I think, was third. Is that not right? I think I was somewhere in the midfield. Did you never drive for Helmut? No, no. I, that's when I start for Helmut,
3: but I remember I had some problems. A couple of weeks before, there was the European Championship race, and I was very competitive. But then we came to this Formula One race, and I still remember because it still hurts. I was thinking it's going to be the same game than before in the in the European Championship race. I'm going to win it, and then the whole week, weekend went a little bit wrong. <laughs> and you won it. Ah! <laughs> yeah, you won it. <laughs> no, you didn't. Uh, uh, Martin but, did. Martin <laughs>
1: Brundle won the race. So that that's when you would first know each other that's 40 years ago remember can you remember eddie at that time or when was the first uh, the first time you remember meeting him
3: yes i i remember similar than eddie and i remember on the way home you had a bad accident and you called me and you need some help in austria because one of your trucks had a terrible accident and that's when we start
2: get more close well it 's always in the face of adversity, things like that you you know who you can and I did call Gerhardt uh, and tragically. Marty's number one mechanic, Rob Bowden, lost his life. Tragically, the truck went over a cliff, if you like, the, the mountains. In we, we did a silly thing, I think. We decided instead of going the motorway, we would be able to shortcut by going over some of the mountains. Um, actually, in, in many ways, the people of Austria were sensational because the police and everything, they made it easy for us to be able to try and uh, leave and, and go, and that happened. And I just must add to that, please, because Martin... Uh, Brundle was driving the next Sunday uh, in Throxton, but we would no car. And there was a guy called Tim Clues, great insurance broker, and a couple of other people came together, went down to Ralt Factory, and they built a car, and we raced against Senna the following Sunday. Uh, but the, the the hospitality and the, the, the real well-wishers in Austria was sensational. But then Austria and Ireland are kind of very similar types of countries. We've got big brothers on top of us and uh, there was a bit of a relationship and they were fantastic.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to, to hear of the, the loss of the
2: mechanic in that, but as you say, out of adversity, that's when you, you discover who your friends well, are. Well, so. you know, and I think, I know it's 40 years ago and you often think, well, how long do I really know him? But I think we've never had a crossword in our lives ever since. We've crossed swords many different times because he had different teams. But just like you, you were both very lucky. You avoided driving for Jordan in one respect or another. But um, anyway, we won't talk about that.
1: No. Well, actually, I'm curious to know because we're going to get into your career and understand your journey uh, from touring cars into Formula One, actually. So a slightly different route. But did you ever get approached by Eddie to drive for him in Formula One and if so, did you say, I'm not driving for that joker? It was a no-go for him and for me, because we both was
3: just behind the money. And so, <laughs> so
2: it wouldn't work hard. <laughs> one At has least to pay and one honest. has to receive. He's unlike you. Yeah. Yes, he's, no, we know you're after the money. It's, it's no, it's a banker. I
3: learned then he's a, he was a banker. So it was very clear. No way. (laughs) It it,
1: it wouldn't have worked. Everything for me. Yeah. I was trying to remember when the first time we would have met. And it it would have been, of course, when I I came to Formula One. But a standout memory for me was when I was in my first full year in 95, because I did eight races in 94. But I remember you and the other Austrians uh, organized. When I say the other Austrians, I mean the late, great Nicky Lauda. And um, who, Karl Heinz, who ran the the Bernays motorhome, you pulled me in and persuaded me that it was tradition in Monza before qualifying to have a schnapps, and I was a young impressionable driver, and you know you were a Grand Prix winner, and, absolutely, and and you got Nicky there and and Karl Heinz, and of course you guys had set this up, and I didn't want to say no, so they bring out three little glasses that look like schnapps. For sure, they were drinking water. They gave me a schnapps. This is about half an hour before qualifying. I take the schnapps. I go out. I'm on pole position. <laughs> I got uh, pole. David, I always drunk before
3: qualifying
2: a Ramazzotti and an espresso. This conversation will revolve around schnapps for the whole duration because that was 95, David. I want to go back a couple of years. 93, I arrive... In Japan, I hadn't got a driver, so I decided, Jesus, I better give Irvine the chance. He, I'd sent him out there to make some money for me in Formula 3000, and he'd been doing really well. So he got the drive. It's his first drive ever in Formula One. So Irvine, as we know, was a great talent and uh, great fun. Uh, and we won't talk about his fitness levels, but that's another story. But anyway, during the race, it was wet and he knew the track in Japan in Suzuka and tough he, track great he, track a, 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 a really audacious uh, manoeuvre to unlap himself against Senna and Senna went on to win the championship that particular day and um, of course they got absolutely hammered with Karl Heinz with him with, uh, Gerhardt was feeding him with snaps and, and uh, at this stage uh, Senna who was really a teetotaler but he was a, a office head on whatever he had given him and he sent him he said I wouldn't put up with what Irvine did you better go down and see that Irvine and teach him a few lessons and tell him do you not realise I am the world champion and that's it. is that your Austrian um, no, assassination well, of Gerhard? But anyway, Irvine came down. What happened then?
3: It was a bit similar, as you said. We, after the race, uh, uh, Ayrton tried to overtake uh, Eddie, what was overlapped and um, it was very difficult. It made him the life very difficult and in the end he said, well, if somebody wants to overtake me, it doesn't matter if it's overlapping or not, then he has to do it. But anyway, we was with karl and with Ayrton and we... We, we talked about it the and Erden was so upset and we gave him one schnapp, we gave him the next schnapps, we gave him the next schnapps and, and he started again to complain about it and I said, why you just don't go out and beat him and stop to talk about it? We gave him another schnaps. he went up out and tried to beat him. <laughs> there and was a picture of them
2: facing in the yeah, back yeah, no, of the little, He's doing an interview and as we, because we were a small team, we were given these tiny little huts to, to have our hospitality in and in Walk Centre and I'm saying, Jesus, the world champion is just coming in here to say well done to Eddie for finishing sixth. You know, his first world championship point in his very first race. Not many people had done that. And the next thing, boom, he punches him. And Irvine just runs back. He says, that's the best publicity I'll ever get in my entire life. And that's how it happened. Yeah, so it was a win-win situation. <laughs> on the front page of every paper. <laughs> I'm very conscious of the fact that we, we have your
1: time for, for this particular podcast. If we were actually to go through the timeline of your career and all of the things that you've lived through, we, we'd need to do like a, a series. We'd need to do seven or eight shows because you, you've teammated with uh, one of the great champions who uh, in his lifetime credited you with teaching him how to have fun and you credited him with giving you a few driving tips. But we have to talk about your your relationship with Ayrton. Then we need to obviously talk about the fun and games you used to get up with. Uh, but let, let's start, first of all. Ayrton was someone that I worked very briefly with as a test driver. Uh, I cherish the fact I have an overlay of me driving the Williams around Estoril on the same day that he was driving the Williams because it gave me a direct comparison with an unbelievable driver, someone that was able to exploit single lap performance in an incredible way. So, you know, share with us your experience uh, being a teammate and a friend to Ayrton.
3: Well, I think we we three know very well the, the Ayrton as a person, mm. especially Eddie, Eddie had to fight with Martin for many years in Formula 3 against him, so he knows him in and out. He was just a very, very special personality. He was a very special driver. Unbelievable commitment. Um, I learned over my time, impossible to beat. And, but I have to say, I was a bit naive. I, we, we've been the same age. We came in at the same time into Formula 1. Him a half year earlier, me later... We know each other already from Formula 3, and and then we start to compete in Formula 1. I was in Ferrari, he was in Lotus. And uh, I had a good setting in Ferrari, good car, good engineer, and I was competing with him the whole time and, uh, and uh, winning races. And uh, I underestimated how good he really was. I thought it's, it's similar to many other of my teammates. It's just going to be another one to beat. And that's why I decided to go from Ferrari to McLaren. I didn't care about Ayrton or no Ayrton. Uh, I, I, I just saw myself. It was funny. It was the first race in Phoenix. And he was already a little bit the king of the rain. And the first day was raining and I was on ball. Uh, that was still Friday when we, we went for ball. So second day try... I was a it was a gear on ball. So I said, okay, it's just another one. <laughs> you know, then in the race I had some problems with the battles and I, I crashed. But anyway, he went back to Brazil, thought about it, come back and I never beat him anymore. <laughs> 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 no, he, he, and then he really he really showed me what it means to have talent, to have professional approach, to have a street cleverness of Sao Paulo. Um to have a very, very high level of concentration. I, I, I started even for the first year when I was in McLaren, and then the second year, maybe after a couple of months, I just thought, impossible f- to beat this guy. And just one funny thing, you know, when I left Ferrari, I had a very good engineer, Giorgio Ascanelli, a young engineer in Ferrari, and I worked extremely well with him. He, he looked to my face and he knows what the car needs. But I thought it's normal, you know, so uh, I thought I am so good. and but he he was a big part of my success, you know he made the setup of my car, just right. So anyway, when I came to there was different engineers. Uh Ascanelli was new generation. He was the first guy with the computer at the time, with status and so on. This was a bit more the old-fashioned style where you as driver, tell, okay, uh, cars doing this and this. So anyway, it was difficult. At one stage, I said, I need this Ascanelli if I won't compete with Ayrton. So I went to Ron Dennis and I said, Ron Dennis, you know, there's this young guy in Ferrari. We need him, we need him, we need him. After a couple of conversations, stayed quiet. One day... Uh, Ron called me and he said, Gerhard, I have good news and I have bad news. What would you like to hear new? First, I say, well, let me know the good news. He said, Ask analysis is coming, the engineer. Ah, great, fantastic. He said, what is the bad news? He says, he's going to work with Senna." <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why did he do that? Ayrton already did his homework in the back, you know. <laughs> and, and, and so it just was so... In some ways funny, in some ways nice, because they've all been always great. McLaren, Ron, always been great when I worked for them. And Miss Senna had a very, very good relationship. But when it comes to killing instinct, you know. That's him.
2: That's him, nothing else. But he was the same in we talked about Formula 3 and Marty. And even then, uh, before that, he would spend all night... Every night in the garage, the lights would be always last off because he wanted to see every single item on the car. But I want to change this topic. We we're talking about technical widgets and stuff like that. I don't want to talk about that. I, what made you think by putting in his room, in his bed, you filled his bed with a whole lot of frogs? Now, people might find that very bizarre, but what on earth was going through your head that you would do such a thing? You put frogs in his room? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know. You it, put frogs first of all, his his case, you dropped it out of the helicopter going over Lake Como. Just, yeah. just, just just
0: there. <laughs> I
2: remember. Yeah. Because you said it was he said it was indestructible. He said it was made out of carbon. you said, well let's Not have enough. a let's see about that. No. you open the door
3: no, and you said. And Ayrton spoke every day about his bloody new contract, what is not signed yet. And it's so difficult. And it's, oh, oh, again, a discussion. And we was living in the Villa Deste. And one day in the morning, we met in front of the helicopter, him with his briefcase. And he showed me the briefcase, said, the contract is done. It's in. We say great. I don't want to hear the story again. It's finally got. Thanks, God, it's done. We sit in the back, Lisa and myself, wife of Ron Dennis, and Adam flying the helicopter in front with the pilot, Mr. Important put the headset on everything and I had the briefcase under my knees. And we was just crossing the circuit on top of the tower, you know? And I saw the bloody briefcase with the new McLaren contract. So I opened slowly the door. <laughs> I put the briefcase and I put it out and I closed the door again. <laughs> so, so then we watched, Lisa was in the back. She couldn't believe, you know. So we watched the, the thing fall down. We was about, I don't know, it was about 150 meters high. So we landed the helicopter there. I go out, jumped out from the helicopter and Erdogan went to the back to pick up uh, his briefcase. And he didn't find his briefcase. He looked and then we saw from far a marshal running, coming with, with his briefcase in the hand. So he looked, but he was very switched on. At one stage, he looked at me and said, "You didn't do it." <laughs> so <he> I <said, laughs> so flew
1: out of the of the helicopter. Did he see the funny side, or was he
3: pissed no, off? No, 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 hey, the, no. knew there's there was no limits at this time. You know. Well,
2: no. why did you do that? Because it's not just the only thing that you did to a teammate. You know, should I tell you? I think these days,
3: I don't want to see the guys are funny like weeping or whatever, but. It's so transparent, everything now, that at this stage, you could basically do anything. Yeah, I mean, you're not driving racing cars or Formula One if you're not a little bit crazy. And and this goes through all your life. And, and we've been also, when we've been joking, maybe the limit was sometimes a little bit different. But today, with all the transparency, with all these new technologies, it's impossible to do. You cannot. So... At
2: our time, we did, and we had a lot of fun, we had a lot of laugh, and it, it was super. Now, It was an, a major laugh, and we come on to some of those, but we've just had somebody, uh, your old teammate, uh, Jean Alessi, and of course, uh, Jean has very fond memories of his time with you, but nevertheless, he has one or two issues with you, and we're trying to go through, what was going through your head when you decided to tear up his passport? He
3: was not the way to Japan, and I didn't want that he goes to Japan. Uh, what was it? Yeah, yeah, we
2: had to... Uh, you store yeah.
3: up his passport, and he waited for you. He was so angry. I think maybe just a moustache or something. No, no no, <laughs> no, no, no,
2: no. You tore up his passport for the people and the listeners out there. You want no, to but, realize what no, but, used to uh, go on. You do not want to be a teammate of Gerhard Berger, because you take your life in your own hands in a different way. Nothing to do with racing, but it was real manic. He was a comedian, and he just ran the roost. No one ever was like you before do you realize that do you know there was the james hunson there was you maybe a little bit irvine all in different way but they were absolutely all crazy guys why did you tear up his passport i tell you a better one
3: of a passport that was a small one but i,
2: I tell you a real good one of the passport go on so sorry last have to tell the visitors he waited for you in the car park
3: yeah in in Estoril. he, he waited. Ah, in, in yeres he waited for you
2: in the car. Park, he questioned to my car. And he ran, he waited till you were driving out of the car park and he aimed straight for you, first gear and boom, right. straight into right. the side of your car, right? right. Correct? Yeah,
3: and that was payback time.
2: And then you, and then you. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> but I tell you another good one from the bus. Now, now I remember, as you say, we had the last race of the season in, in Australia with McLaren, with Ayrton. And uh, Ayrton already the whole weekend say, well, this race, and I am gone. I am gone to Brazil. I come back again one week before the first race. You go testing. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we've been before the race in our, in our settings. And like usual, I always looked a little bit in the Playboy. He read the Bible. And uh, then he left the, the motorhome. And I saw his briefcase open. And I look, and there was two passports in. One diplomat passport and the normal passport. So I looked, I put the pages out with his photos on both passports, and I had this playboy with a, a girl with the open legs. I cut it out, and I taped it in and closed the passport and put it back to the briefcase. Anyway, after the race, he said, Gerhard, I'm going to Australia, to Brazil, I'm going home. I, I give you a call <laughs> in the winter. I said, okay, have a good flight and a couple of days later called me in Austria and he said you're the biggest idiot I ever met he said you know in Australia I won the race they they just say go out but I had to stop in New Zealand and change plane in New Zealand and they asked me for a passport I put the passport in and he opened and here was this nice looking girl looking out and they put me nearly in jail so anyway he was very upset and we go forwards backwards and it was all fine but then the new season starts And he was telling to a couple of journalists this story. And one journalist in Austria started to write this story. Anyway, one day I was home in Austria... Somebody knocked on the door, I opened, was the police in front of the door. So say, they said to me, I said, Mr. Berger, I know them all around there, but they had half smile, half serious face. We have to ask you some questions. You need to come with us to the police station. I thought I, I was too quick with the car somewhere, or I did something, whatever. And so I was going to the police station with them. And the police station, they sit me down, and they say, well, here we have a serious problem. You are an Austrian citizen, you, you destroy the passport. And I say, but listen, listen, I am living in Monaco, the story is in Australia, and uh, it's a Brazilian. He said, no, 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 with an Austrian citizen, you cannot do something like this. This is uh, a serious, this is a serious matter. And we need to make now a report on it and to see what's going on. I say, oh, shit, you know, I say, I'm, I'm, I'm in troubles. Anyway, it was quite serious. So they start to put out the paper and start to write down what happened. And I say, well, but this is a this is a story from the newspaper. And uh, I say, um, it's, it's not true. And I say, but it's written. I say, yeah, but it's written a lot of stuff, you know. And I say, okay, okay. So tell us, do you know about it? And uh, yes, I, I hear about it. This was the just after the finish in Suzuka with Prost, all the fight happened with Prost, with Senna, and they say, "Do you have any idea who was doing this?" I say, "Yeah, I know." They say, "Who? Alain Prost." So he would So, but the story, you know, in end, didn't end up so funny. It took one year to be able to get out of this one. But this was my story Mr. the passport of Richard Ayrton. So you pushed it maybe a little bit too far in, yeah, in that particular it's, case. It's a serious thing I, I was yeah. underestimating. So have anyway. you
2: ever had uh, the misfortune to have some of these games played on you by Gerhard? I don't think so. I think I managed to avoid Gerhard doing
1: anything like that uh, with me. But we, we have some things that... Well, we all of us, of course, have motor racing in common. But one thing we have in common is working for Ron Dennis. And Ron was a particular character... And uh, you obviously know him very well as a team principal, Eddie. But the thing that a lot of people don't realize about Ron, because he didn't always, let's say, communicate well in the paddock with the journalists, but he liked to have good fun away from the track. And I'm, I'm sure when you were there with, with Ayrton, you had some nice dinners and nice parties. I know when I was there with, with Mika, we, we also had that situation. But, you know, he, he was a lot softer in, in social than he was when he was at the track. I couldn't agree more. I think,
3: you know, we all know the, the good and the not so good side of, of Ron, but uh, I have to say when I worked for him, he always was great to me. He always supported me. It was not easy next to Ayrton, but he always supported me, included him in a very good way. And, sorry Eddie, at the time I have to say he was the best
2: I have no doubt about that. No, yeah. oh, you result.
3: admire.
1: You've said this in a previous podcast. Oh, okay. okay. i okay. yeah. admired McLaren at the
3: time. When I mean, when he started to think about road cars and stuff, he wasn't concentrated anymore. But as long as he was focused on Formula One, he was the best.
0: I have absolutely only
2: 100% support of what you've just said. But anyway, I want to go back to a little story where I don't know why I needed to leave Japan to get back home um, in, a, in a reasonable fast time. Look, he's laughing already. Look, he's taking the piss out of me big time. So we're on the plane and I'm, I said to Bernie, Bernie, any chance of jumping on with that plane of yours? And he said no. yes you're said, mixing it up. we got burger on the plane. Eddie, you're mixing it up. Am I mixing it up? Will you tell us the story then? Tell us about what you did to me, you nasty bastard.
3: Yes. Uh, I, I'm a, it's a pleasure to tell. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. David, it was it really... Wasn't funny at story. all. It was <laughs> a
2: two weeks, three it was weeks really pure story. hell.
3: We, we, we had a plane together, Ron and myself, to flying to Japan. On the way back, he came before the race. He came to me and said, Gerd, would you mind if he take Eddie with us back? Because, you know, no problem at all. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So he can come back with us. And that was the time when I wasn't racing. I was a motorsport director of BMW, and we supported the engines to BMW. And this was the big weekend of Eddie presenting in Suzuka. His new partner Ford, Engine Supply, made his big press conference and so on and so on. So on. Anyway, when I hear the story, I say, okay, no problem, Eddie can come back with us. And I went back to the motorhome. I just thought, and I said to my guys, can you take a piece of paper and write on that we're going to supply next year to Minardi an engine, a BMW engine, free of charge, and and it was a, a very good engine at the time, you know, put it just in my briefcase. And they didn't understand what they're doing, but they did it. So I put it in my briefcase. So after the race, we all ran to the airport. So we went into the plane. Everybody got his place. I put the briefcase in the middle. And I say to Ron, Ron, I go to the cockpit to the pilots. And you say to Eddie, come on, let's open the briefcase of Gerhard. Let's have a look what he has in. (laughs) So anyway, I went to the cockpit. Do you believe what's going on here? Take 20 minutes, walk back. I saw so Ron already <laughs> like this. You know? so, so Eddie, was, he couldn't even sit anymore straight, you know. At one stage, he said, God, what are you going to do next year with the engines of? You still have exclusivity with Williams? And I say, no, Eddie. Um, next year, maybe we're going to supply a second team. Ah, ah, did you think about us? I say no, Eddie. Uh, you have his fault. You just made a big mistake. No, no, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's not important. Why? Why? You know, we could be the best team for you. You know? Can you believe Mini is BMW and we <laughs> young and and fun and so? Yeah, but Eddie, you have a contract over. The- don't worry about it we're we gonna sort everything out you've been busted. You've been busted. <laughs> I've been
2: busted you've been busted i told so, you it's a bad mistake to have you, him on here. you so
3: could. i say but eddie this is a fantastic idea you know uh, i would love to give you we are just talking with minardi yeah huh? so he knows of course everything because he read my paper in the briefcase you know so i tell you for 12 hours for 12 hours. It's longer night. that. Longer. longer. He didn't sleep one second. He was just thinking all the time how he going to put the thing further. And I start to do like I'm going to sleep, you know. Whenever I open one eye, I could see Eddie already and so on. So I say, okay, Eddie. Uh, I think we have to have a look deeper into it. I need to convince my board in BMW because now we have been out, but maybe I can talk with them. But you know, I need all your numbers of your of your company. You know, <laughs> I need. I need. A, oh God, we just have done a due diligence. I have all the numbers. I say, but Eddie, it's good. So you send me everything, <laughs> then I can prepare my, my my document for the board of you. <laughs> so very evil so, you are. So very evil. Twelve hours flight. You have no idea. And Ron was just sitting all in the house. <laughs> and before we went out, and, and the, the way when we were landing, I said to Eddie, I said, Eddie, you sent me tomorrow all your papers. And one thing, you know, who is very influenced to, to all the boards is Bernie. You should have Bernie on your side. Maybe he can do a call and say, well, it's a good idea to give Eddie. I'm going gonna, gonna to contact Bernie again <laughs> uh, immediately. I don't worry. I so anyway, when we left the plane, uh, Ron puts me on the side of the bus We need to tell him, we cannot let him go like this, you know. I said, no, no, don't worry, let him go. So anyway, he left, we left. Until I was home, Eddie, I think I had about 25 missed calls on my my, my telephone. Next day, I got 40 papers of all his numbers of of the company. Every spreadsheet that you could get your hands on was email. Everything got... At one stage, the day after, I got the telephone call from Bernie, and Bernie says to me, what did you do with Eddie? Eddie is <laughs> sitting in front of my office. I have to do all this deal now with McKenzie. I have no time, and he's talking about some shit. What, what, what did he do with him? So anyway, at one stage, we had to stop it. You know? And then he came and said, God, you bastard, you know, you write me immediately an email that you're not going to use my papers for anything wrong. You know, it's very uh, discreet and and it's just, yeah? And they say, yeah, Eddie, and you read me an email that you never look in my briefcase anymore.
1: <laughs> it definitely seems that you have played the biggest joke in Eddie that I have yeah. ever heard. That's fantastic. i never recovered from this. <laughs> you kept that very quiet. I've never right. come back in a private plane with him either, I have to tell you. No, no, no. Well, look, look I want to, to bring it back to a slightly more serious note because... Formula One is a serious business and you've had a fairly unique uh, career in that not only were you a driver, but you were a team owner as well with Toro Rosso in partnership with the late, great uh, Dietrich Marischitz. But before we get to that, I remember as a a young driver, aspiring to be in Formula One, watching all the Grand Prix, and you had a very fiery accident in Imola. Incredible actually that you were able to walk away from that. You had some burns in your hands and and then came back to continue your your career. For the listeners, Buddha's in the cockpit. You know, that was a big moment. You're in the flames, you know, reminiscent of what Nicky Lauda had happened to him at the Nürburgring. But thankfully, your burns were restricted, I think, to to your hands. Well, first I have to say, you know,
3: when you talk about these jokes make us laugh and think. but because the other side of it was, it was bloody dangerous at the time. I mean, when I see now all these test benches, all these tests, what is done before the parts go into the car with all the calculations and so on and so on, it's quite safe compared to this time. This time we've been the ones find out if, if the wing was strong enough on 300Ks or it, it collapse, or the practice explode or the tire goes or whatever it was. So how many accidents we all had all the time in in practice, where you've been not on camera, where you don't talk, where you've been so close to lose your life, it was unbelievable. And that's maybe also a little bit the conversation. The laughing was a bit the conversation to, to, to the serious side of the business. And Imola was a little bit like this. I mean, uh, was a new car, was second race, or third race, and we have these chicans in Imola where we take the curbs, and we had the front wing end plates nearly on the ground at the time. So, of course, the wing got uh, a big bang a couple of times, and and then I entered a straight, and uh, just before Tamborello, uh, the front wing broke. And I remember still well, and it's, it's impressive what the body and the eyes do at, at, a, at a situation like this. It's, it just went like a slow motion, you know, I... I I was about 300 k's quick. I had about 200 kilos fuel in the back, and it was just straight onto the concrete wall. I remember I I tried to steer, but the car was lifting in the front, and the first moment I said, it's a puncture in the rear. I looked in the mirror, no, I didn't see a puncture in the rear, and, and so on, until the wall was there, and I put my hands on the shoulders. And honestly, before I I crashed into the wall, I say, no way to survive because I was so fast with all this and and, and the car just exploded. And they measured about 120 KG in the impact. But I have to say, John Barnard at the time was a a brilliant engineer and and the chassis was just uh, saving my life. The chassis was unbelievable. Uh, The monocoque was so strong so that it broke in the middle, it exploded and so on. But in the end of the day, I had... Okay, I bumped my hands, my back. I have broken a rib, or, but but in general, it was nothing for this accident. And as you say, uh, normally you don't you don't walk away. But I tell you one thing now because I think it fits to our t- uh, story. Before to Erdogan, they put me into the hospital. I was in the hospital. Erdogan called me and say, "How are you?" I say, "Well, I'm okay." But Erdogan, I say, I tell you, we need to see this. Um, this wall has to be moved because one day somebody gonna die there. And he says, yeah, I say, listen, let's go and see to get rid of this wall. And a couple of weeks later, we've been testing in Imola. We both went out from the car and walked to Tamperello and looked how we can remove this wall. And then we looked over the wall and there's a, a river behind. And we both looked to each other and said, well, nothing really we can do. We didn't think about it to make a shikan. Nothing really we can do, you know. So we walked back, going into the car and kept driving. And that was exactly the
1: place where he lost his life. So that's what's the bet side. You're a driver. you were a team owner. You ran the, uh, the ITR, which, uh, or you're the owner of ITR that uh, is behind the German touring cars. There's always been an entrepreneurial side to your life. And I'm curious in two things. Uh, what the future holds for you in, in terms of business, anything you can share with our listeners. But also, I want to know, winning a Grand Prix as a driver or winning a Grand Prix as a, as a co-owner of Toro Rosso, as it was at that time, what, what gave you more emotion? David, the nicest position in,
3: in our sport, it's to be the driver. It's fantastic. And when you are lucky and you be a driver for a team where you can win races, as example, when you drive a Ferrari and you win Monza,
1: then this is something that stays forever. We we've been speaking on previous episodes about the difficulties Ferrari are having, and and it's kind of painful to see them not getting the results because Ferrari are the biggest name in Formula One. How do you see their their current plight, and and what would you do if, if actually if they called you up and said, Gerhard? we want you to be involved in the team. Would you consider it or are you you're done with Formula One?
3: No, the answer is clearly no. I am I'm 64. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm super happy, but I, I won't take the time for myself and I would be not prepared to go 24 races flying around. Uh, no. But I have to say, we all love Ferrari, and I think for the sport, it's very important that Ferrari is part of the championship run. It's a very, very important thing. But obviously, as Formula One, there is no kind of balance of performance or whatever. It's get your car right, get your team right, and then, then if you win, everybody going to be behind you. But we all would like to see Ferrari a little bit more competitive than it is. But I have to say, uh, I spent two periods in Farai. In, in, uh, I went six years to Farai, three years, then I went three years to Miklan, then I went three years to Farai back again. And I experienced always the Farai as we see it now. Good, but just not not that good. And yeah, it's, it's a very, very difficult uh, thing to be Super competitive in Formula 1 and to win championships. If you want co- compete or if you want to beat Red Bull at the moment with Max Verstappen in the car, uh,
2: difficult to have the answer what they have to do. I just, he mentioned something there a few seconds ago I'd like to just touch on. And you said 64. Is that your age? Well, that was a very, very special 64 when I'm 64 was the Beatles. And we often talk about our love affair and affection for George Harrison. And I know you in particular, I remember going to a party with you, me, George, uh, Barry Sheen and a couple of other people, was that Adelaide or something like that? And we had some great parties. Um, and I want to touch back on the Beatles and your connection with George. You found him an amazing guy.
3: It was, was a great time with George. Unfortunately, he passed away too early, but... Um don't ask me how this friendship came. You know, we met each other, of, of course. I he knew you were mad, message.
2: and that's probably why he had that, he had that uh, in him as don't well.
3: Don't forget there was a third mate, one was Barry. Barry Sheen was one of my friends. No, f- Barry, Barry was one a of lunatic. My I best mentioned him. And it was always uh, George, Barry, and myself. And was a fantastic group, you know. George couldn't just believe what he see, saw. Sometimes he was very me because he, saw, he couldn't believe what, what was going on. I about. was there to and, witness something of occasions. And I, 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 I was sure that he enjoyed this very much. But anyway, I, I, I think I met him first time in in Brent's Hedge, 1984. And he slowly just built up a very good friendship. And uh, and he kept until his end. And was was also a very, very nice thing, you know. Um, George State lived in my house, I think, I, I don't remember, and it was in two months or something like this, in Austria, up in the mountain. The time when when they was looking for him in Los Angeles, uh, in the end of his, his, his life. And uh, he was up, uh, sitting on the terrace, and uh, watching the farmers cutting the grass, you know. <laughs> Uh, so he was two two months living there, and uh, yeah, we, we, we the families, our families had a good relationship. So um, it was it was a nice time to spend together. But to be honest, I just realized later or now what it means to have a George Harrison as a friend, because at the time I was just busy with myself the whole time and. It was very he was, special. He was also an
2: extraordinary special person. Very uh, he had clever. had time for everybody. I mean, yeah. people think about the Beatles. Anyway, we, we pass. I have one other question, if I may. I think it's important for the listeners to have a real opinion of somebody who actually raced with them. And I, I'm thinking about Ayrton. I'm thinking about Mansell, thinking about Prost, and I'm thinking about Michael Schumacher. And I'm not asking for a one, two, three, four, but could you give me, was there anyone that actually stood out? Because I'd like to hear your opinion.
3: For me, Don was the best race driver I ever saw in the period I was close to racing, but it's nearly 50 years now. And the guy was, uh, was just... Another level, I have to say. I raced. I was in the team with Menzel. I know that the guys quite well, but Ayrton was another level. The only guy I felt for a while came close was was Luis on the sportive side because he was extremely good too to reading races and so on. But today I have to say is Max Verstappen. Max Verstappen. Max, it's really now where I'm I, I not... Have to think about it. This is this is another guy, the same level,
2: higher level, perhaps. I mean, he could you know, he could go on to win more than seven world titles, couldn't he? If if he's lucky and yeah, he but stay safe. If
3: Ayrton would not die at this race, and if he would have, you remember the car? I mean, shit, he would be maybe seven, eight, nine times champion. He would win all. The, I mean, the races after Williams won all the races. Can you believe Ayrton in the car? He, he would be just unbeatable. But. I have to say, I, I, I watch Max now quite careful. And it's again a new generation of race driver. He had unbelievable karting career. He learned racing from the very beginning in karting very well. And the funny story, I, I've been on a karting place the other day and there was a guy next to me. And after a while he says, you know, I've been the mechanic of Max Verstappen for 10 years in karting. I say, I said, yeah, I was with Jos, with his father, for 10 years, we were together, and he showed me all the photos, yeah? So I started to talk with him, and he says, "Gerd, we've been carting every day in the year, all year, never school, never thing, we went just carting. When the freeze came, he at least went kart- uh, school in the morning and came then to the karting truck. Max was just carting for 10 years all the time. And you can see, I mean, the guy is just the way how he sees everything. And the other thing is, he loves this simul- simulato, this these races, sim races, yeah? And you know, when you do these sim races, from child on, parallel to the karting, you learn all the different things already. On the start, first corner, outside, inside, whatever. You can practice so much more. And I feel that this guy has absorbed this all in very young years. Obviously, he's a great talent, too, but he's a very complete driver. And if he doesn't hurt himself, he win win. He will win a lot of championships.
2: I agree.
1: Well, look, Gerhard, as I suspected, we could continue talking for hours. You've been absolutely fantastic. I think that's a good place for us to, to wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, you can get in touch with us and tell us who you'd like to invite on the show next week. You can say Gerhard again if we can get Getty's time. You can email us at ffs at or you can message us on social media at F1 for success. We'll be back in a week. From Gerhard, myself, Arrgh! and the crazy Irishman, <laughs> this if was it, Formula Free. For. So you still look
2: good, huh? No? You still look good. Do you think so? Yeah, yeah.
1: He's well preserved. Yeah.
2: We, we put him in I, vinegar. I took my life a little bit. And actually, I'm coming back just before we finish. Because we're finished. He lied to us. DC, he lied to us. Do you know that that is a true story? He did put a whole load of frogs in a urchin's bed. And you know what he said to him? When our air came to me, he said, Ah did you not find the snake <laughs> Yeah he cleaned the whole room when he was finished I said God you know
3: uh, it was the whole night we put out all these frogs and now I'm back in the room and I say and where did you
2: find the snake? <laughs> <laughs> you really were a ah, of late listeners, I think we all need a rest after this conversation. Goodbye, everybody.
1: Formula for Success is brought to you in association with F1 Manager 2023, giving you unparalleled control of your chosen F1 team and a brand new mode that allows you to rewrite the season on your terms.
4: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science?